Well, good morning. You can take your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of James. It's good to be back together studying James. We're going to be in chapter 2, picking up in verse 14 and working through the end of the chapter this morning. And it's probably safe to say that our text today is the most well-known text in the letter of James. There's certainly no doubt it's one of the most important sections in the letter, but it also is a text that raises a lot of hard questions as we read it. In fact, when I think of the challenges of this particular text, I remember an interesting meeting I had probably over 10 years ago now in an airport in Amsterdam. I was, I was either coming back from or on my way to Turkey. I can't remember. But at this airport, it was the first time that I had ever seen a sign at an airport that there was like a meditation or prayer room uh, at the airport. Maybe you've seen that if you go to larger international airports. So on this particular day, we had uh, some time there in Amsterdam before the next flight. So I decided to go and check out this prayer room and see what was going on in there. There are only a couple of people in there from what I remember, but an interesting place filled with religious books and all sorts of languages uh, for those books. And I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I saw a guy there uh, reading something and we started to talk. He was a Polish guy and we started talking about religion a bit. I eventually found out that he was uh, Roman Catholic, as many Polish people are, and as we were talking, we ended up finding on the shelf a modern Greek Bible. And I told him that I knew, I knew some Greek. And, I, and he seemed intrigued by that. So I think I asked him if he wanted me to like, read him something. And, and, uh, and I could translate it for him. And uh, what text do you suppose I went to? You know, so I, I picked a text. I went to John chapter 3. And I just started you know, translating through this text for him. It was about what Jesus said to Nicodemus, a very religious man, that we must all be born again or we'll never see the kingdom. Now, what was really interesting was his response because he asked me a question. He asked, have you ever read the book of James? Do you know what text he wanted to point out to me from the book of James? It was the very text that we're going to be in this morning. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Likely because he thought this is the text that I needed to hear. So what's in this text? And what was it that this, this man apparently wanted me to see? I want to, I want to start today, we don't always do this, but I want to actually read through the whole text so that we see the text and then we'll go back and we'll start working through it. But I want us to see the whole text at once. So, so James 2, verse 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, as we talked about a little bit last time we were in James, this is a tough text, especially when we compare it to some of what Paul says. For example, the Apostle Paul seems to say that we are justified by faith alone and not by works or apart from works. But James seems to say that we are justified by works and not by faith alone. So, so what do you do with that? I mean, how, how does that fit together? How would you explain this to a man in Amsterdam, if you, you know, in an airport? Like, what, what would be on your mind? And I want to try to help us with that today. Uh, I think there's a couple things I'd like to point out early as we work through the text. And the first thing is that we have to let James show us what he means by some of the key words in the text. Like, what does James mean by faith, or especially faith alone? Or what, what is he thinking of when he's talking about works? And, and how is he using the word justify? Okay, because just because people use similar language doesn't always mean they're talking about exactly the same thing. And you can think of a lot of different examples of that in English. Lots of words can be used in lots of different ways. And so you have to pay close attention to how each person is using these words. And so that's, that's something we've got we to gotta really focus on James today. Not, not so much other texts, but what is James trying to get at in this text by those words? And then the second thing that's important to remember is that different situations often require different counsel. So you take a person uh, who is very proud and conceited and, and puffed up, always thinking about how awesome he or she is. Okay? How would you counsel that person? That would be very different, I suppose, than how you might counsel uh, a young lady who always thinks of herself as a failure and is worthless. I mean, you think of what you might say to one and it might be almost the opposite of what you would say to the other. Because different situations, different needs often leads to different sort of counsel. We could think of someone going to a doctor. You, know, you go to the same doctor on the same day. One guy walks in, 
complaining. Uh, he's got some minor headaches, and he's always getting tired after lunch at work. He can't stay awake. So the doctor listens to him, does some tests, realizes the guy's pretty healthy. Says, you know what? You're a healthy guy. Why not just try a cup of coffee, you know? Drink a cup of coffee after lunch. See if, see if it helps. The next guy walks in, and he's all fidgety, and he can't, he can't sit still. He's like, Doc, I don't know what's happened to me. And he starts, the doctor starts talking with him for a while. He says, you know, like, you've been drinking, like, a lot of coffee or, like, energy drinks. He says, I, I only drink 12 and a half a day. Just 12 and a half cups a day, Doc. And the doc says, you know what, well, I, I mean, come back in two weeks. But I'm just not, for, for the next two weeks, just kind of lay off, lay off the coffee, all right? Cup or two a day. See, see if you come back the same way. And now what do we think of that doctor? I mean, that could be the same doctor, the same day. You know, how inconsistent. This guy is contradicting himself. You know, what kind of doctor is this? He tells one guy to drink coffee, tells another guy not to drink coffee. Is, this that, is that what we would think about it? I doubt it because we all recognize different problems require different counsel, different sicknesses, different medicine. I think that's one of the key things to understand when we read James versus what we read in some of Paul's letters is that they're actually not addressing the same problems or the same people. And, and so we read them and we just kind of take, we can pull out verses, but but those verses are written in letters to real people who, who think real, thing, real things, and, and they're not thinking the same things. And so the, the advice they're giving or the things they're saying are different. So when Paul writes to the Romans or to the Galatians, for example, he's often talking about how a sinner can get right with God and, and about how God freely and graciously will declare us right with himself if we'll just trust Jesus, if we'll turn from our sin and just trust Christ, that he's died for our sins and he's been raised from the dead, God will declare you right with himself if you'll just believe. It's not through what you do or how much you have to offer God. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that a person who's a sinner can get right with God. And this is something that Paul emphasizes. But when James writes this in our letter today, he's not addressing that question at all. James is not ad addressing how does a person who's a sinner get right with God. James is addressing a person who claims something like, yeah, I'm a believer, Sure, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. But the person has no real life obedience to demonstrate that he or she really does believe this at all. James is going after that. That kind of faith. Can that kind of faith save a person? Now, the last time we were in the study, we, we took a whole Sunday uh, in Genesis to walk with Abraham on his journey of faith, because James references that in this text. We learned a lot, I hope, through that. We saw the ups and downs of Abraham's life, the victories and failures of his faith. But one of the biggest takeaways from that study was that there is an unbreakable connection between the faith of Abraham and the obedience of Abraham. 
Abraham's faith and his obedience can't be separated when you read the stories about him. He obeys what God says because he actually trusts what God is promising. In fact, the authenticity of his faith can only be seen in his real-life obedience. How else would you know if he really believed what God told him if he didn't actually obey and follow the Lord? And on the flip side, if there was no obedience to God in Abraham's life, we would have concluded he never really believed the Lord because he wouldn't respond with obedience. In our own day, though, we, unfortunately, sometimes compartmentalize faith as merely a mental profession. Like, if I just say the right words, that's all God cares about. If I can just say it the right way, or just pray the prayer the right way, that's all God cares about. But the story of Abraham shows us we cannot think that way. True faith and real-life obedience are inseparable in the Bible. In the teaching of the Old Testament, Jesus, James, and even Paul. And this is precisely the point that James is going to make in the text. True faith in Jesus and real-life obedience to Jesus can't be separated. Now, I want to go back to the text in, in James, and I just want to, I want to walk us through it. We're not going to take a really long time on any portion of the text, because I want to try to walk through the whole thing so you can see how it fits together. So, James 2, verse 14, again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith or claims to have faith, but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? That's the key question. If someone claims to have faith, but has no works, no deeds of faith, no real life obedience, can that kind of faith save a person? And the answer, what do you think it is? The answer is no. That kind of faith cannot and will not save anyone. Now James is going to illustrate what he said. Verse 15, you take, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, oh, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, can you even imagine that? And notice, this isn't just any person. This is a brother or sister, like in the church. person comes to you in desperate need, little clothing, lacking even enough food for the day asking for help, and what do you say? Oh, go, I hope you'll be warm today. Hope God will fill up your stomach today. And you don't give them anything to really help them in life. What good is that? I mean, nice words without action do nothing for the person. Okay, I got that, right? What's, what's the point, though? What's the connection? What, between that and what James is talking about. Look at verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. See, confessing the right thing, faith in God, faith in Jesus, without action, accomplishes nothing. 
good. That's false faith. That's dead faith. Now it's important to note that, that James shows you right there what he means by faith in this text. By faith, James is talking about a person's profession or confession of the truth about God or Jesus. And so when James says faith by itself, that phrase, faith by itself, or faith alone in this text, he's talking about mere profession, mental affirmation with nothing else, no change. That's what he means by faith alone in the text. Faith by itself, mere profession, without works, real life obedience, is dead. It's false faith. It's dead faith. It won't save anybody. Saving faith includes confessing the right thing about God and His Son, but true faith is more than just saying words. It involves really trusting and laying hold of Christ, turning from your sin, confessing that Jesus is your Lord, and you'll always be able to see signs of it in real-life obedience. But apparently not everyone agrees with James on this. Because if you look at verse 18, he's going to introduce an objection from like an opponent. And that's how you have to follow the text. That's what he means when he says, but someone will say. This is a, a common way in first century writing, to introduce somebody who disagrees with you. Like, he's had these conversations before. And so he's going to show you another viewpoint, and he's going to try to argue against it, okay? So look at verse 18. But someone will say, like in response to this, no, 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 you have faith and I have works. Now, again, this is an opponent. You'll see the quotation marks in the ESV probably just have, you have faith and I have works. This is what the opponent says. James' big idea is that faith and deeds of faith can't be separated, but the opponent basically wants to say, you have faith and I have works, which I think just means some, one person has faith, another person has works. You can have faith and not have works. You have it, I have this. They're two different things. They do not have to go together like you're saying, James. Faith and works do not have to go together you can have one without the other. I think that's the point that the person's saying. James's main point is you can't separate these. And this guy's saying, yeah, you can. Some people have faith. Some people have works. They're two different things. They can exist independently of one another. So how does James respond to that? Look at verse 18. Again, James says back, okay, show me your faith without your works. I mean, think of that. Show me your faith without pointing to anything that you do. What's the problem with that? I mean, can you do that? Can, can you show me your faith without pointing to anything that you do or don't do? It's impossible. And that's why James says, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, to, to keep pressing the point, mere profession is never enough. You believe that God is one, right? That's like the Shema, you know. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? He's writing to Jewish people. You believe that God is one. Good for you, right? Great. That's a good thing. But you know what? Even the demons believe that. And they tremble when they think about it. I think he's almost saying like, the demons believe the same thing and they actually respond with fear. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, because he's still talking to this guy, that faith apart from works is useless? Do you need more evidence, more proof? Where's James going to go? He's going to go to Abraham. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Where does he go for more evidence? He points to the life of Abraham. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac? Now, as we saw last, this is where you have to try to remember. I'll try to review a little bit, but you have to remember the story in Genesis. This is why we took the time there. When did he offer Isaac? Do you remember what chapter? Genesis, anybody have a guess? Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is about the offering of Isaac. More or less at the end of Abraham's life. He's been journeying by faith for the last like 10 chapters in Genesis. Decades. He's been following the Lord, okay? He's well over 100 years old uh, in Genesis 22, okay, when he offers up Isaac. The question for for us is exactly what James means here by justified, because Paul also often talks about justified, being justified. And this is, this is, this is, I think, you know, the, the tension point in the text, when Paul, if you look at when Paul's talking about being justified, he's often talking about that initial declaration that God makes about you when you trust in Jesus. God says about you, you're right with me. Because you trusted in my son. But that's not the only way that that word can be used. It's not the only thing that it means. Another use of the word justified is to talk about being proved right in what you did. And that's what makes sense in this text. Because James is talking about the evidence that shows something about you. How our works or our obedience demonstrates something about us. In other words, what James is saying or asking is, wasn't Abraham our father proved right by what he did? Wasn't that Abraham's vindication that he really was a man of faith when he followed through and obeyed? Wasn't it his works that demonstrated the authenticity of his faith all those years before? And that's where I'd remind remind us, this, this is in Genesis 22. 
that Abraham passes the test at the end of his life, but he's already been journeying by faith all those years. This is like the culminating moment of his whole life. And at the end of it, do you know what God says? He says, now I know that you fear God because you wouldn't even withhold your only son from me. Abraham's profession of faith in the Lord was confirmed and demonstrated through real-life hard obedience. So James says in verse 22, you see that Abraham's faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed by his works. And that scripture was fulfilled, the one that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Do you know where that scripture comes from? It, maybe the kids know. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis, they don't do as well in the references like most of us, but they know it's when I say it. Genesis 15, 6. But the point is, Genesis 15, 6 is like 25, 30 years before Genesis 22. The scriptures already said Abraham believed God and he was counted as righteous before God. And so when Paul talks about justify, being justified, that's the text he points to. Abraham was declared right with God through just trusting the Lord's promises. But when do you see that, that statement that he had faith, when do you see it confirmed? Like when do you really know, man, that is a guy who really believes. You see it all through his life, but the culminating act of faith in his whole life was at the end of his life when he offered Isaac in obedience to the Lord. And now everybody knows that guy's faith is authentic. I mean, does he really trust the Lord? Look at what he did. Does he really love the Lord more than anything? Just look at what he did. Don't just listen to what he said. Look at how he lived. Verse 24 of James 2, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And again, by this is where everything comes together if you've been following James. You see a person is justified or proved right by works through, through their obedience, not by faith alone, not by mere profession. And then to close out the section, look at verse 25. He points to one other example. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab is, if, if you remember, she's the one person in all of Jericho who didn't just hear about the God of Israel. They all heard. They all heard, right? But she didn't just hear about the God of Israel. She actually put her faith in the God of Israel. Everyone in Jericho heard. She's the only one who actually trusted in the God of Israel. But how do we know that she trusted in the God of Israel? Just look at what she did. She risked her life to hide two Israelite spies because she was so convinced about what she had heard about Israel's God that her city was going to be destroyed. And, be, and as a result, God spared her and her family, the only ones he spared 
from the city. And James points out that that act of faith, just like Abraham's offering of Isaac, demonstrated the authenticity of her faith. Rahab the prostitute and Abraham... I mean, think of those two different people put side by side. For Rahab the prostitute and Abraham the hero of the Jewish people were both vindicated through their faith-filled works. They were both shown to be right through that. And that brings you to the conclusion, to the text, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, you can think about that, a corpse, apart from the, the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Just like the opening verses. Mere profession or faith apart from works is dead, as dead as a corpse. And that sort of faith can't save. That kind of faith is dead. And this is where I, I, I think it's important to note, so I can be clear here at the end, that James and Paul agree on this. They were dealing in these letters with different questions. Paul works often with the question, what does it take for a sinner to get right with God? And the answer is faith alone. Just faith in Christ alone. James, however, works with a different question. What kind of faith in Christ saves? Is it simply saying some words? Oh, sure, I believe. Sure, I'm a Christian. I'll check the box. Is mere profession all that God is looking for? No. God wants real faith. And real faith is always demonstrated in real-life obedience. And in this chapter, especially, in real-life acts of mercy toward the needy. Doesn't mean we obey perfectly, but true faith is alive, and you can see it. And the truth is that James and Paul agree when you read through Paul's writings. There's a lot more of his writings. But one scene I'd leave, you, leave before you in regard to James and Paul is shortly after the writing of this letter. The church, the early church, had a huge issue where they had to discuss how, how does a person get right with God? Do, do Gentiles need to do something more than trust in Christ? Like, do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to become Jewish to become right with God? And the church had a big meeting a couple years after this letter in Jerusalem. We call it the Jerusalem Council. And do you know who stood side by side at that council against false teachers defending the truth that anyone, any sinner can get right with God through simply trusting in Jesus Christ. Do you know who stood together at that? Peter, James, and Paul. The three main guys. Side by side, together, defending the gospel at the first church council in Jerusalem. Now as we close, I want us to think together of the relevance of this text. Like, What are we supposed to do with a text like this? A text that challenges us <clears throat> about what true faith really is. 
I want to give a couple, a couple thoughts. Maybe you'll have applications that God works in your own life through this. I think there's a couple things you can learn about the Bible. Like when tough questions are raised about the Bible, like questions about this text, it might seem easier to ignore the questions. But I want to encourage you, you do not need to do that. The Bible can be trusted. Let hard text turn you back to the Bible, not away from the Bible. Second, I want to clarify that James is not against good doctrine. Like James is not against professing the right thing about God or about Jesus. Not at all. The gospel is first and foremost good news. It's content in the gospel. That Jesus is the Son of God who came here for us, to live for us, to die for us, who's risen from the dead, and to, and to be saved, you have to hear that. And you have to understand that. And you have to believe that. James is not minimizing the importance of any of that. But he is making a very important point. And that is that knowing the right doctrine in our heads is not enough. The gospel calls us to real repentance from our sin and to personally embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. The gospel call is to more than just saying words. Sure, I believe that. Jesus always called people to turn from the path they were going and to trust him with all their hearts and lives and to follow him. To trust him as our Lord for life and as our Savior from our sin. Third, I would simply say that God may use a text like this, even today, to wake up fake Christians. I think that that was one of the main purposes of the text, was to wake up people who thought that by just saying some words, they were good. And if that's happening in your life, like maybe you you say, oh yeah, I believe, but there are no signs of life at all, that's not good. Maybe God's being so gracious to, to let you hear this text to wake you up, to bring you to real repentance and faith in Jesus. Also, I think as a church, I've been thinking about how this text ought to challenge us to want to stir each other up to keep trusting and obeying God. Like if you see a brother or sister who who's professes faith in Jesus but doesn't have any desire to follow Jesus, like this is a good text to remind you. Maybe you should talk with them and encourage them. Try to stir them up. Fan the flames of faith that maybe have been dying out in their life. So they'll keep running after Jesus. But on the other hand, when you do see signs of life in one of your brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to tell them that. Share that with them. Like, I see this in you, in you all so often. I see God's Spirit's presence among us, working in us, 
growing us in our love, our patience, <coughs> our hatred of sin, we should be sharing that with each other, encouraging each other. I see God at work in you. I see the signs of authentic faith in you. And God uses those encouraging words to keep us running. And then lastly, I just want, to, I want you to remember that the entire Christian life <clears throat> is a life of trusting and obeying Jesus. Trust and obey. What's the next step of faith that God is calling you to? I think you could think of your work or your home, your personal life, but in, in all likelihood, there are specific areas in your life that you know God is calling you to trust him and to obey. The challenge from this text would be to trust God and get going. Walk. Take the next step. We say, I wish I walked by faith like Abraham did throughout his life. It starts, walking starts by taking steps, right? When, when you feel God is calling you to trust him and to take a step of obedience, take the step. Start walking. And at the end of our lives, by God's grace, we'll be full of righteous fruit. And people will look at us or remember us, even at our funerals and say, that was a person who I saw real faith in that person. I mean, isn't that what we say about Abraham and Rahab still today? Because it was their deeds of faith that helped us to see, man, they got it. That's what this text is about. Lord, thank you for giving us the grace to make it through today, to be able to hear your words. I thank you for the strength you gave me to speak. I pray that you will encourage our people, do your work through your word, through your spirit, so that we'll all look like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.